I just wanted to um, gather a few thoughts, really, around the idea of persecuted church and uh, the reality it is for so many people. It's not really a reality for us uh, here where we are. Uh, we might get the odd niggle and things that disappoint us, but uh, persecution for those churches that we've heard about, those countries that we've heard about, is uh, a day-by-day living uh, reality. But you have to say... There's so much more we could do for the persecuted church. It's great to pray for them. It's great to financially help. It's great to visit. Uh, it's great to practically help. Uh, but also, we can learn a lot from them. Uh, they give to us in their example and the way that they face persecution with an eye, not on the temporary, but on the eternal. And for them, where their lives are not so comfortable as maybe ours are, they have to focus on that eternal because they're longing for things to be better. Uh, they, they maybe sometimes say, where, O oh, death, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. Maybe they can say, along with Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Maybe it would be a welcome relief for them. We don't have to say that in the situation that we find ourselves in. In the world, there are those who value meeting together so much, they walk for miles. Um, now, many of us drive for miles, some of us might walk a few yards, uh, but they can walk literally for miles and miles, and in incredible danger if they're caught. You know, if they're caught and, and uh, it becomes known that maybe if they even have a Bible in their hands or they're on the way to an illegal gathering of Christians, so much bad things could happen to them, but they don't give up. They continue to do it. Christian churches and individual Christians don't suffer much persecution in this country. And it's fair to say that we might be laughed at, we might be sneered at, uh, our faith might be attacked sometimes by academic atheists who've been trying to do that for 2,000 years, yet the truth remains. Unknown mum- numbers, might, you might miss out on uh, possibly promotion at work because your superiors dislike Christians. And maybe that is a form of persecution. However, I would say that our churches are not destroyed, only by sometimes the people within them. When we see churches closing across the country, it breaks my heart. When we see the darkness in the world and in this country, and yet gathered witnesses, gathered worshippers, either have moved away or they've given up, it breaks your heart. We don't really suffer the persecution. Our churches are not destroyed physically by outsiders. We're not physically attacked, generally. Our schools are not burnt down because they're Christian schools. Our children are not kidnapped. We're not subjected to physical attacks and murder with the state offering little or no protection. Yet that is a reality for so many. A man called Kenneth Warren is a former journalist and he's now an ordained minister. Um, And he's made these studies of persecution. As a member of staff for Release International, he's travelled widely, including Africa and Asia. And he points out, that persecution is as old as Christianity and that we shouldn't be overly surprised about it. I suppose if you think about it, Jesus Christ, as we heard uh, when we were spoken to, was pursued by the state authorities. Those that were around to protect the people and govern the people, actually, he was pursued by them. He was arrested, he was bound, he was whipped, and he was crucified to death. So before we get too comfortable, he warns his followers in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Yet we get surprised a bit when things don't go our way. And of course it happened. What he said came true. And it is true for so many millions of others. The early church saw Stephen stoned to death. 
Other disciples were executed. Many fled from their homes. In the beginning, Saul of Tarsus led the persecution. He changed completely when he met Jesus himself. And we see so often lives change completely when people have an encounter with Christ. Paul's letters have much to say about the persecution that he witnessed, that he dealt out, and sometimes then in the future he suffered in his travels. He wrote in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just take that in for a second. For I consider... So he'd gone through so much stuff. I mean, he was quite a well-educated man. Uh, He was schooled in theology. He got it wrong for a big portion of his life. He has an encounter with Christ. And then persecution starts for him. He's whipped. He's shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He has to claim his rights as a Roman citizen. He could have gone back to that life. He could have done anything he wanted, really. But he said, he says, for I consider that all these sufferings, all this stuff that I'm going through, all these sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying that he's suffering now, but he looks forward to the glory. And much of the persecuted church have to do that. Their circumstances are dire, but they give glory to God anyway because their eye is on the eternal Paul had such an inspired view of what was to come, an eternity with God, that his suffering and his angst and his frustrations were put to one side as he focused his destiny with God. He knew that one day he would come face to face with God. And so will you, and so will I. And he he knew that he would have his reward because of what Jesus Christ had done for him, the way he accepted Christ and then became a minister to the Gentiles. And for us in our situations, for the persecuted church in theirs, all the suffering he puts aside because he recognised what Christ had done for him and that for eternity he was going to be good. He's going to be with God. That was assured. He was grateful just enough that he'd been saved and he'd been set free to serve and actually set free sometimes to suffer. And such a belief inspired Christians to witness in the face of torture and of death. And do you know what happened? The church multiplied. And you so often see dictatorships and regimes don't seem to get it, that every time they try and crush Christianity, God grows it. The underground church grows unbelievably fast. It multiplies again and again because of the faith of the believers. In a foreword, the Archbishop of York, John Sensimu, stated that although Christians in the West are shocked when they hear of the persecution abroad, we lack the magnanimity to embrace as we should the struggles of those who are literally at the sharp end of today's conflicts. And agencies like Release and Open Doors, they help us to enter in a small way into that conflict, into that suffering, into that pain, and when we can respond in prayer and all sorts of other ways as well. We can learn from the persecuted, particularly for their faithfulness, their understanding of the real gospel and of Christian grace. They've got a lot to moan about. Yet somehow they, go, they carry on, they pursue, they stay faithful. They embrace Christian hope. Sometimes Christians, we can have worldly views, uh, hope for more money, maybe a larger house, maybe our holidays abroad. Even commendable things, hopes of Christians, often can refer to this life without an eye on the future. We hope that more people will come to our church, that you obtain an evangelical minister that some of our friends would be converted. There's nothing wrong in them. They're all commendable, 
but the emphasis is on the now. The emphasis appears to be voiced not so much on our hope, which is eternal life. We've got something so much bigger than anything we do now coming. The New Testament talks about the hope that more than anything should motivate our lives, which is the hope of eternal life in the glorious presence of God. And for these Christians in the world whose lives are constantly threatened, whose wives and children, I mean, it's hard for us to enter into this, the wives and children are taken away, husbands, fathers, to be slaughtered, or they're kidnapped, never to be heard from again, or locked away for years. They've got, they look forward to that eternal hope because life at the moment is not that great. So they rarely voice the worldly hopes, but they constantly pray for eternal life for themselves, their families, their friends, and even their enemies. So eternal life with Christ is something that we could learn from the persecuted church and maybe constantly should be on our lips, always an eye on the future. As a minister, uh, it's a privilege, really is a privilege, to minister to Christians whose earthly life is coming to an end. And when, when that time comes, I pray for and really rejoice with them in the hope and the surety of eternal life with their God. And for me, that will become a reality at some point as well. And it will for you as well. And that, that moment of truth, all my life is going to point to that moment. At that moment, everything I've done or that you've done, which is great if we're working for the Lord. Of course it is. Everything I've done or feel that I've achieved will drop away. It will seem unimportant because this is going to be my time and your time to be with my Lord, your Lord, Master and Saviour forever. It's important what we do on earth. Of course it is. We pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, the word says everything we do, do it as if it's for the Lord. And Of course there's work to be done. But my life and your life must be lived in light of that future glory that is coming. And if we can, then we don't have to beat ourselves up too much when we have to endure suffering, because it may well come. Or endure hardship, which is a reality for so many. It may mean making life choices that from an outside perspective, a non-Christian perspective, make no sense. And you might even be persecuted or ridiculed for it. But we've got to take our eyes off the worldly concerns and fix our eyes on Jesus, who the Bible says is the author and perfecter of our faith. We trust him. And the persecuted church, we see it again and again in the face of huge opposition, an attempt to silence them, threats and sometimes acts that defy the basic character of God, which is love. And instead shows that there is a devil and evil in the world and hate. These persecuted Christians are committed to God, they're committed to one another, so much that they'll literally risk their lives to be together. Literally, through choice, but also through need, living out their devotion to God and each other. Not for them, the view that the gathered is an optional extra, but instead an embracing commitment. One of the most beautiful passages, I think, my personal view in the New Testament about the church. Holy Spirit's been poured out. Uh, they're a great witness just by being Christians. And it's in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour for all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They had God, but they had each other as well. And it was God's intention that they meet. That's why they're so sacrificial, the persecuted church, to walk for miles in danger, threat of death, to be together as God's people. They were devoted to that. And we've got to find ways. We can learn from them. Because we're in a different context, but we must learn. Find ways of being devoted to one another. As a larger church, it's difficult. Can't know everybody. I spoke about this Wednesday night. But we are a family. So when we have things like bring and share lunches or time, our fellowship time after the service or before the service or whatever it is, or invite someone to our homes or get involved in a small group, these are all ways where we can be devoted to one another. Or we can choose to opt out. We're not so persecuted here. Of course, there is some. Recently in Ireland, the bakers that were taken to court because they didn't want to bake a certain cake or guest houses that are targeted uh, because they wanted to hold on to their Christian values. It might be in the school playground. It might be in when you're teaching or you, you know, you're not allowed to pray or whatever it is. But we're not so persecuted. Probably coming. But we do have other pressures. We do have other pressures to make the journey to be together, maybe to turn us away. Anybody else, and I've got a little bit of confession time, and it's not every week, and our marriage is fine. Anyone else have a bit of a row sometimes just before they're trying to leave to get to church, or there's something in the way, or there's other things you could do? Because there's one that doesn't want you to be part of the fellowship. They don't do anything to distract you. Maybe it's a bit of social pressure. I won't make it today. We've got people round for dinner. Who's going to put the beef in? Pastoral advice, get yourself an oven and put a timer on it. It'd be good. <laughs> Says he who has no idea how to use that. <laughs> but what does that say to the persecuted church? We didn't gather. We had to put the meat in. I'm just p- picking these out of hat. Maybe there's some social pressures. Sports pressure. Oh, we play football on a Sunday. I wonder what that says to the person. Well, you could meet together. Sunday is still a sacred day. In my uh, ministry, I've tried all sorts of things. I've tried Wednesday evening services. We've tried Saturday services. I don't know why they don't work. There is still something sacred about this day. Somehow God is using it across the world. And isn't it, isn't it the one day? When I, when I was growing up, all the football was played on a Saturday. I wasn't a Christian then, I actually played both days, but the Sunday leagues were much smaller. Now there's hardly any football being played in the Saturday, it's crept in. And I know for you as parents, because I've been there, that creates pressure. I'm not saying just the young lads, but mainly, but some of the girls as well. It's very easy to give up and say, okay, we've got to try and find a compromise, and we've been there as well. But there's something sacred about this day. And it's not only that, there's loads of other things, all sorts of sports or social engagements or... I don't know, you wanted to watch Andrew Marr, whatever it is. There's all reasons not to come to church, but don't give up. It's important, it's a sacred gathering. Sometimes, I'm sorry to say, it's just lethargy and apathy. Take it or leave it. Consumer church. 
What does that speak to the persecuted church? They're devoted to one another. They, could, they risk losing their lives, walking their way to church. I know I need to repent of some things. Maybe it's when we're here. I wonder what time. I wonder if you're sitting there now thinking, how long is he going on for? <laughs> I wonder what time I can get away. Do we miss the sacredness? Even ministers do it. I go on ministers' conferences, they're good, and they say, oh, how long do you stay after the service? I say, oh, I don't know, really. It's just there. Oh, you know, I like to get away. I'm really what? I think, oh, I don't know. It's something about, something about being here. Something about being among the people. And I don't want to be rushing away. I'm not saying I've got, got to stay here forever, but Andrew and I were talking. It's good to be among the people. We can't know everybody intimately, but just to be there. Because we have this opportunity. It's wonderful. The church is wonderful. A lot of people in the world don't get this chance. Gathering of believers is such a sacred thing. The Bible says that we're God's holy temple. That's when we gather. We are God's holy temple. In the same way I wouldn't take an axe to the physical temple, why would I take an axe to the people? So there's caring, there's nurturing among all of us. They devoted themselves to God and to each other. And there are distractions, but we've got a lot to learn from the persecuted church. Steadfastness, commitment, the church family, which they feel it's right to risk their life for. Jesus set up the church before you think it was a bad idea. It was his idea. His intention is that we join together to worship and encourage one another to learn and to love because, as Sister Sledge said, we are family. <laughs> you know, it's not in my notes. And I wrote it on the first, but I thought, I'm not going to say that. And I just saw we are family in bold, and I thought, I'm going to put it in there. But we are family. And there'd be disappointments and grievances because that's what families have. But there's such a blessing in it as well. You're not alone. You're part of a family. For the moment, that's here, Bilirikin Baptist Church. But you're part of the, the godly world family of which the persecuted church is part of it. So what I want you to do this morning at some point, you don't have to do it right now, but look around you afterwards in the busyness and the coffees and the teas and get the kids and get the beef in. Appreciate one another. You know, this is wonderful. Appreciate one another. Serve each other. Love one another. Be grateful for one another. Don't be so rushed to get away and miss out. And then come to me and say, I don't feel part of the church. Because it's about being incarnational, being among the people as well. Ministers do that as well. Or we should. I love it that sometimes... You ever been to the theatre? I'm not a big theatre-goer. I saw... um, the first time I went was uh, Phantom of the Opera. And I did like it. I liked the music. It was all good. But you know when you get the half-time break and you're in the bar having your orange juice and, <laughs> and you're enjoying your orange juice so much you've lost track of time, what do they do? They what? Oh, I forgot that. What else do they do? <laughs> they turn the lights, don't they? The lights go on and off, don't they? You think, oh, I better get back. Let's put my, leave my orange juice there. I love it that sometimes we're like a theatre here that we have to turn the lights on and off a bit, especially in the evening, to say, no, it really is time to go. I need to get home after everything I've just said. We had our church members meeting Wednesday, and I went on a little bit, to be honest. Um, But it turned into a bit visionary, and I was very excited. Um, And I was worried that it was going on, and it wasn't too long, about ten past ten, I think, I can't remember. Um, Was it longer? Was it longer? (laughs) What I loved 
And I was getting a bit worried. But what I loved, at, at the end, people hung around. Um, some had to go, I understand that, as children and everything else. But there was some talking, there was laughing, there was even some praying going on. But it got to a point, we turned the lights on and off and said, come on, go home. But isn't it wonderful that people, we, we don't feel rushed? And this is sacred. This is what the persecuted church understand. Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And all the more, as this is the eye in the eternal glory, all the more as you see the day approaching, we need one another to encourage and to love and to help and to serve. And we should say along with Paul, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amazing words. So remember the persecuted church in your prayers. I would say they're probably praying for us as well. Uh, loads of opportunities you've heard to prayer support that second Tuesday of the month, but also the Tuesday prayer meetings. Every week there's a slot given over to one aspect of whatever we've been sent that week for the persecuted church. And in the meantime, don't, let's not be disrespectful about who we are. You know, I was at a, a larger, a, it's a bit of a mouthful, Baptist Union Larger Churches Conference from Monday to Wednesday. Really good, loads of positivity and everything else. The guy from Woodlands Church in Bristol came. Uh, really inspiring. You know, I love going to conferences when you get inspired. And there was, because it's the larger churches one, generally there was only 35 ministers there. There's not that many larger churches in the Baptist Union. And, but they were positive. They said, we can take on the world because we have Christ. And it's a bit different to some of the other conferences I go to where it's all, ministry is so tough and it's so difficult and uh, all this stuff, which I actually don't have too much time for. But the positivity in the room was palpable. But what, I lo- what, what really humbled... And I'm, I'm a Baptist by conviction, um, but I'm a Christian, right? Not but I'm a Christian, you know what I mean. Um, I'm a Baptist, it reflects what I believe as a Christian. And I've never spoken down about the Baptist Union. It has its faults and it has its blessings and everything else. But I'm a Baptist minister and that's what I signed up for and that's what I am. And we're a Baptist church. And it's great that we welcome all different denominations. I'm not getting into that. It's more that it's just my conviction, okay? Uh, you had John the Baptist. So he started a denomination. I joined it, which is good. <laughs> but this minister from Woodlands Church, they've got about 2,000 members, multiple sites in Bristol. Um, he said on the last day, so I need to lead you in a prayer of repentance. And he said, it's something I've picked up in your language. Uh, we're there Monday uh, through to Wednesday. He said, what it is, you, you've gone beyond self-deprecation. You put yourself down. And you don't understand what you have. So we said, well, you know, what do you mean? He goes, well, you at dinner say it might be saying, oh, it took us nine months to decide it. Well, don't worry, you know, <laughs> we're Baptists. And he said, it gets said so much, you kind of used it as an excuse. He said, you need to repent of that. The Baptists um, is a denomination that's gone for hundreds of years. Some of those early Baptists went to death because of what they believed in. He said, be proud of who you are. And I've always been proud of that, but I thought, well, coming back here, let's be proud of us in a godly fashion, of the church that meets weekly, that Sunday is sacred, that we think of our brothers and sisters across the world, but also each other now. Because all of you in different ways are facing a little bit of persecution. So we should come together and pray and encourage and love one another. And we should stop putting our church down. We should think well of our church. It's not perfect. By a long shot, it's full of sinners, of which I'm one. But we're doing pretty well. And we are trying to generally do the good stuff, the God stuff, not of the devil. 
So let's talk ourselves up to your friends and your family, your work colleagues. Church is a good thing. It's Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And his intention is that we gather. And it's that important that elsewhere people risk their lives for hours walking so they can gather. Isn't that an amazing thing? This is a sacred gathering. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for your church in all its different uh, guises. We realise that uh, different churches reach out to different people. We realise that here we can't do everything. Like we heard from Georgina and Pete, we can make difference one person at a time. And I pray, Lord, that you'd guide us by your spirit to do that. We'll make a difference wherever we find ourselves. We pray for the persecuted church once again. We thank you for their perseverance, their steadfastness. And I pray, Lord, that we can learn from that. And that we can think of ourselves as a holy gathering, a sacred gathering, where you dwell among us. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we'd reignite that passion for the fellowship. It's so important to you, Lord. We need encouragement. We need love. We need to stand with one another. And I thank you we see that in so many different ways here. But we pray for more. And we pray that we'd be intentional about that. Using opportunities to be together and be among one another. I pray your blessing on your people here. I thank you for them. I thank you, Lord, that we're in a position where we can gather in freedom. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And we thank you, Lord, for those brothers and sisters on a more global scale. We ask you to help us to persevere in this life, even when we suffer, with always our eyes on the eternal glory. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.